Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. And hello there, this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, December 14th, 2017, almost at the new year. I want to thank the many people who supported our last seminar on death of a salesman, what happens when the so-called originator goes out of business or into bankruptcy, and how that affects the fictional chain of title being presented across the country by the banks. And I'm announcing that we will be offering a new seminar in late January on evidence, discovery, objections, and trial strategy. Watch the blog for further details, www.livinglies.wordpress.com. As a preview to that seminar and some other things, uh, tonight we are talking about the rules of evidence and some discussion on discovery. Follow the instructions you received when you called in, and you will appear on my dashboard, and we will get to your question um, in the order in which they came in. We have 30 minutes talk uh, show time tonight, which is 28 minutes talk time. Please, when you are picked, tell us the status of your case quickly and ask one question. I am broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm, with offices in Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners just like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not yet contributors, we ask that you do contribute, and hit the donate button on the blog or call 202-838-6345, which is our main number and not the number to call into the show, and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you and my work has had value for you sometime in the last 11 years, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. As an introduction to the subject of evidence, let me say that the layman's understanding of evidence and the lawyer's understanding of evidence are extremely different. The lawyer's understanding of evidence has to do with the rules, with the laws of evidence. 
layman's understanding of evidence is that if he heard something or saw something, that's evidence. No, that's information. Lawyers know that nothing is evidence on its own. Nothing is evidence until a judge rules that the testimony or document or photo or screenshot is going to be admitted into evidence, sometimes over the objection of opposing counsel. Information is all around us. News stories on the Internet, made-up stuff from the Internet, a lot of that. And all sorts of books and studies have information in them that you may want to present as evidence in a court of law. But until that information is reviewed by the judge and admitted into the court record, it isn't evidence. It's nothing. And just because something is in the court file doesn't make it evidence. And if your objection is sustained when the other side is putting in evidence or attempting to, that doesn't mean it is automatically moved from the, removed from the court record. You must move to strike the question and any answer the witness has given from the court record. And the judge, hopefully, having sustained your objection, will grant your motion to strike. Then it's to be taken out of the court record. Speed of objections is extremely important. Once the witness answers, chances that your objection will be sustained are declining with each passing millisecond. This can work for and against you. Banks have lots of information, some of it real, and most of it, as I have repeatedly said, is fabricated for trial. And they attempt to get that information past the judge and into evidence by moving quickly so you don't pick up on what is going on. Moving quickly is one of the key strategies that lawyers for the banks use to get things into evidence that might be otherwise excluded upon a proper objection. Once you start objecting and cross-examining by drilling down on the foundation for the bank information, then the information is tested. And if the objections and cross-examination are well-founded, that information generally fails the test for evidence, even if it's already been admitted. In other words, doesn't strike the information from the record, but it does um, uh, it does mean that the judge is now going to disregard it or put very little weight on it. And that's, that's another thing, by the way. The fact that you got evidence in does not mean you proved anything. If, if you've got evidence in, then the uh, information or evidence can be taken by the trier of fact, which is nearly always a judge rather than a jury, and given whatever weight the trier of fact chooses to place on it. That is a source of many uh, uh, 
people uh, being confused because they think that once they got it in, they proved it. Proving is a matter of persuasion. It's not just a matter of following the rules and getting in into the record things that you want. Getting things into the record might support a future appeal, but I prefer litigating to win in the first instance at the trial level than preserving issues on appeal, where in most cases, whatever the judge decided is affirmed. The main test for information is foundation. If you have a news article or a report from someone, the only way to get that into evidence is by laying a proper foundation. And the only proper foundation is generally going to be the testimony of the person who wrote it. That way, the opposing side has a chance to cross-examine or voir dire the witness as to whether his knowledge presented in the article or report is based upon his own perception or the perception of others. here to talk with me um, about evidence, information, and how it affects trial and settlement of claims is Patricia Rodriguez, an energetic and experienced young trial lawyer from Southern California. Patricia, welcome aboard for your return visit to the Neil Garfield Show. Hi, it's always my pleasure, and I was just listening along and in total agreement with you. You know, it's about admissible evidence, and then I was always taught, you know, the fact that it's been admitted, like you said, it doesn't mean that you've proved anything. That's the art of persuasion. So it's about weight and not admissibility, right? So even if it's admissible, how much weight is your trier of fact going to give that piece of evidence that you got admitted? And I, you know, I've always gone by the uh, precept that if you want the trier of fact to give that one piece of evidence weight, then you've got to refer to it and bring it in to the narrative of your case several times because it's very easy to forget one fact even if you think it's really important. So... Patricia, you know, you you litigate, and you've been doing that for for quite a while now. When do you think this uh, material on evidence becomes the most important in positioning your client's case for a positive outcome? What's really key is that once you pass the demur stage here, you know, in California, that you start to do your discovery. So you want to send out your written requests, your deposition notices, your subpoenas, and that's really when you want to start building your case. You know, the idea, like you said, is that you build your case to a point where they know you're ready to go to trial, they're afraid of what's going to happen at trial, and, hey, now you can settle the case. But you got to work it up. you got to build as if you were going to go to trial and you were going to prove every single element of every single claim that you're making. Right. And I think another thing that's important is to realize that 
the opposing attorney for the really for the servicer, we say the banks as a catch-all phrase, but it's not the banks, it's the servicer, um, is the uh, servicer, the attorney for the servicer comes in, he's coming in with the objective of winning for his client, and he's going to use whatever tactics and strategies he can to get past the uh, attorney for the homeowner or the pro se homeowner. And that's why I brought up the issue of one of the main tactics that I've observed in hundreds of trials is that they do it rapidly. And even after an objection has been sustained, they reword it real quickly in just a few words the witness answers and you know you object again same objection and to your surprise you hear the judge say now nah, I'm going to let it in your witness already answered and so that's why I bring up the point that if you're going to raise an objection you better be on your toes literally um, to to raise it because you might be jumping up many times within a, within a one-minute period. So what are you excited about now in the world of foreclosure defense? One thing that's really exciting right now, at least here for us in California, is that the Senate Bill 900, although it's set to expire on January 1st, it appears as though they're going to amend it and it's going to be reenacted so that it continues to apply even after January 1st. So we're certainly happy to know that there are still some protections for California homeowners with regards to Senate Bill 900. And that's the Homeowner Bill of Rights, correct? Right, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it was set to expire on January 1st. And my office, along with some other, you know, foreclosure defense attorneys, have really been working with the legislatures to put an amendment so as to extend that past January 1st. Otherwise, borrowers would have lost the ability to demand a further review if they had changes in their financial circumstances. It's already tough enough that the banks, technically speaking, don't have to give a modification. If they also didn't have to do these reviews, then the borrowers would be even in a worse position. What are some of the other protections that are contained in the Homeowner's Bill of Rights in California? Absolutely. So the number one protection is that um, they cannot go forward with a foreclosure while you have a pending loan mod application. So while there's a complete loan mod application under review, they cannot legally record a notice of default, a notice of trustee sale, or a trustee's deed upon sale. So there's no dual tracking. And that's critical, pivotal, very important. Additionally, if you submit a, a package, a loan mod application, and you submit documentation along with it showing that there's been a material change in your finances since the last time they reviewed you, they're obligated to review you again. Another great benefit is that when they do review you, they have to give you an answer in writing, whether they've accepted it or denied it. And once they give you that uh, 
decision, if it's a denial, they have to wait 30 days while you appeal that decision before they can go forward with the foreclosure sale. Additionally, if they make you an offer, they have to wait 14 days until you've had a chance to accept and reject that offer before they can go forward with the sale. So all in all, it, it codified, it put in the code and the statutes what we already knew was the case, which is they're not supposed to be helping you to keep your property and modify your loan at the same time that they're foreclosing on you. That would seem to be just common sense. And it was common sense before the modern era of of these claims of securitization and and transfers of the uh, uh, the loan. Uh, the rule was back in the day when uh, I walked court courtrooms and dinosaurs roamed the earth. Um, that it was just an industry practice that you try to work out any loan that has fallen behind or is otherwise delinquent or in default because it's in the bank's interest, the, the lender's interest to do so. Today, it's not in the lender's interest to do that because the actual lender is a group of, of investors who don't even know the transaction occurred. And it is in the interest of the servicer, the, the subservicer, the master servicer, who is also usually the securities underwriter for the mortgage-backed securities. It's in their interest to get a foreclosure for a variety of reasons. Um, one issue and I know you deal with this. I'm, get, I'm dealing with modifications a little bit more now. But I know you've dealt with a lot of them. The one issue I uh, repeatedly hear, and by repeatedly I mean probably hundreds of times per year, is that homeowners especially those who are not represented, will send in a complete package and the so-called servicer uh, says, we didn't get it. Or they send back a notice that says, we got it, but it was missing this. And this was in the package. So my question for you is not whether you've had that in your experience. I know you have. My question is how you handle that issue, and specifically, I guess, how do you prove that they actually received a completed package? Sure. Uh, we, we actually deal with this a lot. <laughs> so we've come, like, where we have a process, we have a system, right? We have a cover letter that says what the change of circumstances are, and then we have the package. And we send the package by multiple methods. So we send it by certified mail so that we can show when it was sent. Uh, the, the point here is that you have to document everything, document, 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 document. So you get the certified slip, and I also try to send it by fax so that you have your fax confirmation sheet. Now, that doesn't per se prove what you've actually sent. 
So I always maintain a copy of everything that I send. Um, in that regard, generally speaking, when you're presenting your request for a restraining order on the basis that you've submitted a complete loan mod application, you're going to have an attorney's declaration that says, you know, we submitted this package on this date, and then you're going to have that as Exhibit A what you submitted and proof of its submission. Now, we run up against – and now if they ask for – now, let's say they come back and say – well, first of all, in California, again, under the Homeowner's Bill of Rights, they're supposed to acknowledge receipt of those documents within five days, and they're to give you a single point of contact. So if they don't do either one of those things, that's going to get put in the lawsuit as well. So, you know, the fact that they haven't acknowledged receipt is kind of like on them, that's their bad. But let's say they acknowledge receipt, give you a single point of contact, but say you're missing the 456T and you've already submitted it. Well, resubmit it with the one that you previously submitted. And you gotta be careful here because a lot of borrowers, they don't fill it all the way out. They, they don't check box six or they forget to put a date or something they didn't do. So first and foremost, make sure that it truly was submitted and it truly was complete. If it truly was submitted and it truly was complete, then I resubmit the old one that I submitted and I submit a new one. So basically I'm showing them that, one, I've already given you this, and two, here it is again in case you don't have it. And I do that by certified mail and by fax confirmation, and I keep a copy of all of that as well. So now I can show the judge, here's when I submitted it, here's how I know it was received, here's the additional documents they requested, here's what I submitted in response to that, and here's what they did or didn't do. So it's all about documenting what you're doing and making sure that no matter how many, it, it's a negotiation. Who's going to bang their head up against the wall the longest will win the negotiation. Turning in that 456T 16 times is you banging your head up against the wall. So when they ask you for the additional document, you submit the additional document. It's a pain, and it's not fair, and it's, they shouldn't be doing it, but it's the best thing you can do in your interest. How are judges ruling on, uh, on, that, uh, on that issue? Judges are pretty pro-borrowers on that issue. I re routinely, regularly get restraining orders on the basis that a complete loan mod application has been submitted and they have not postponed the sale. And here's the thing in California, even if that sale is, let's say you submit it the day of the sale. Let's say you submit it within five days of the sale. And they have some internal policy that if you haven't submitted it without, seven days before a sale, they're not going to review it. No, there is case law that explicitly says they cannot reject your application because it was too close to the sale date. Even if it's the same day of the sale date, they're obligated to, to review it. Now, here's where the courts have gone in favor of the banks, and you have to be really careful. SB 900 gives you injunctive relief or damages. It does not give you the capability of rescinding a trustee's deed upon sale. So what does that mean? It means that if you have SB 900 claims, you have to seek that restraining order and get it granted. Otherwise, if the property sells, you're not getting that property back. You may be able to get damages for whatever has been done wrong, um, but you're not going to be able to get the property back. And the other issue you have to be careful with SB 900 is what is a material violation. So, for instance, not acknowledging the receipt within five days, um, not giving you a single point of contact, likely is not going to be considered a material violation. However, them having a complete loan mod application and going through with your sale, you know, and recording a trustee's deed upon sale, I think most courts would deem that a material violation. What do you do 
and this is another one that I've been through uh, fairly often. You know how servicers change. It's like musical chairs. So if the servicers, if, the, if there's a new servicer coming into the picture, I have often seen um, and heard about instances in which the offer or the modification or whatever it was going on with the so-called old servicer that the new servicer says, well, we're the new servicer. We don't have to go by that. And we don't have your your application for loan modification. If somebody else has it, take it up with them. What do you do with that? Well, here in California, there is case law that says that the new servicer must, one, if there's a trial plan payment in place or a permanent modification that's been offered, they have to honor that. Otherwise, it's a breach of contract claim and a very strong breach of contract claim. If it's a matter of having submitted a complete loan mod application and now you're with the new servicer and the new servicer saying, we don't have it, but you can submit a new one, then you need to just go ahead and submit that new one. Keep records of the previous one you submitted, submit a completely new one, and track that just the same. If on the other hand they're saying, look, maybe you submitted a complete one to the prior servicer, but we don't have it, we're not going to honor it, and we will not allow you to submit a new application to us, that is actionable. Um, and Now I need to look at the very specific particular issues and, and facts of the case to determine what causes of action best um, address that? But clearly, I would think it's a business and professions code violation and an unfair business practice to deny someone the right to be reviewed when they were under review from the prior service already. It seems to me that it's a relatively simple either contract or tort action. If the first servers, assuming that they were telling the truth, which they never are, but let's assume that they are. If the first servicer was the agent of the so-called beneficiary under the deed of trust, then the relationship between the borrower and the servicer is really between the borrower and the so-called beneficiary. So if the beneficiary changes agents, servicers in this case, I don't see how the new servicer can claim anything at all. This, they go into court and they talk about how their boarding process is impeccable and they get everything from the prior servicer. It's not possible for them to allege that on the one hand when they're looking for foreclosure and at the same time say, no, we don't have anything that you submitted to uh, the other servicer, in my opinion. What do you think of that? I'm in complete agreement with, you know, I think at minimum it's business and professions code violation, possibly a breach of contract, and also tort action. I mean, it, it's an interesting call today. I want to say, you know, I co-sign on everything you've said, 
from the importance of admissible evidence to the importance of documenting everything and to the importance of, you know, really understanding what obligations they have when dealing with you and what obligations they don't have. Well, thank you again, Patricia. Somehow or other, the time just goes so fast here that it seems like we're, we're over by the time we begin. Uh, Patricia Rodriguez, she can be reached at 626-888-5206. Thank you again, and happy holidays to you, Patricia, and everyone. And uh, we will be back with you. Um, I think there's another show between now and the end of the year. And we'll uh, see you all then. Thank you for uh, contributing to the Living Lies blog, and thank you for your support. We appreciate it here at the Living Lies team. And good night. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lies Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.